Welcome to Equiosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs about clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Kivalia. Before we begin with part two of our conversation with Dr. Claire St. Peter, let me update you on my new book, Modern Horse Training. The book proofs came earlier this week, and the books look great. I just love it. Whenever page proofs come for a new book, there's always a moment of worry as you open the package. Is the book going to be okay? Is there going to be a problem that's going to set back the publication date? Is the book going to look like what you hoped that it would? You know, sometimes what you see on the computer screen just doesn't translate well to print. But in this case, the book looks great. Huge sigh of relief, happy dance to follow, and just really, really excited now to have the book coming. I wanted an easy-to-read, inviting page, and that's what I have. So the proofs have been okay. I am publishing this podcast on April 12th, 2023. The publication date for the new book is April 26th. That's the anniversary of Peregrine's birthday. So if you're listening to this on the same day that I published it, you'll have two weeks to wait. And if you're listening to this podcast after the 26th, then you can just go ahead and order the book. I'll tell you more about that at the end of the podcast. For now, I want to jump back into our conversation with Dr. Claire St. Peter. In addition to being a horse person, Claire is a behavioral analyst. She teaches at West Virginia University, where her research focuses on improving outcomes for children who struggle in school. One of her areas of interest is extinction, and in particular, the generative effects of extinction. So that's what we've been talking about. Extinction is our general topic. Last week, Claire got us started by defining extinction. She thought that would just take us a couple of minutes, but of course it didn't. We looked at some really fascinating nuances in extinction that that I really hadn't thought of before. So that's always exciting. It makes my head spin a little bit, and I like that. Our discussion brought us to the distinction between macro and micro extinction, and that's where we're going to pick up as we head into part two. So enjoy. So, so now that we've defined it, how do we make use of it, or how do we avoid the pitfalls of extinction? Yeah, I think those are great questions. So I think maybe a piece to talk about is macro versus micro yes. extinction yes. in that domain. Should we start out with macro extinction? Sure. You've already alluded to it. So that's the your shaping and you are wanting to move the behavior along a trajectory that you have in mind and you are waiting it out. So the response that you're looking for is not really coming through. So you just wait it out until the animal produces some piece of what you're looking for. And you land in macro extinction. And that's when you get all the emotional side effects that we like yeah. to avoid. And I think macro extinction in that way is, a, is 
some of how when people talk about extinction in the research literature, they're talking about this macro extinction. So it's a fairly chronic condition. Like once you land there, you're there either indefinitely in some research studies, right? Like, so behavior is reinforced and then there's an extinction period and there is nothing that the organism can do to change that or until some hard to meet criterion is met. So that's behavior is reduced or behavior is eliminated for some amount of time, or like you have made this huge leap as you were talking about to the next kind of criterional response. And so we know something about the macro extinction effects from the research literature. And, and so what does it tell us? So, so let me, let me back up a bit. So in watching clicker trainers train, particularly when they are free shaping, where they're not prompting the behavior, they're not giving a lot of clues. In the early days, when we weren't as clear about, oh, let's set up the environment for success. And, you know, we're really just, let's just observe the animal. And when the dolphin swims in the direction of the buoy that's out there, you know, blow a whistle and throw a fish, it's kind of the general instructions. But if the dolphin doesn't head in that direction, you're just waiting, 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 you can end up with a frustrated animal. So in the early days, watching people experimenting with clicker training, I saw a lot of waiting it out training. And they, they were really general in the acceptable criteria, which tends to be sort of a, an offshoot of that. So there was a lot of, you know, if the horse puts his nose down on the mat, I'll click. If he taps it with his right front foot, I'll click. If he stands to the side of the mat, I'll click. If he stands behind the mat, I'll click. If he stands in front of the mat, I'll click. Those are all different behaviors, very mm -hmm. different behaviors, but I'm reinforcing mm -hmm. them all. And then, but when I don't reinforce and I'm just waiting, waiting, waiting for the horse to show any interest in the mat, but he's he's already sniffed it and is no longer that curious and he's doing something else. It's a long wait until he shows an interest in the mat. And so I get even more unwanted behavior creeping in. And that was, yeah. that was not, it was not uncommon in the early stages of watching, this is what this training can look like. And you know, when you, especially when you contrast that with somebody who's really skilled like Kay Lawrence, and you see, oh, oh, there's an alternative, another way of setting things up for success, then you really see how striking that approach to, let me just wait it out, that that's not the best procedure that we could come up with. No. Yeah, so you asked what happens when you encounter some of that macro level extinction. And seems like those macro extinction episodes are more likely to produce some of the generative effects of extinction. So people tend to think about the primary effect of, of macro extinction, right? Like it gets rid of behavior, but extinction also generates a lot of behavior. It generates extinction bursts. And so extinction bursts are temporary increases in the frequency or intensity of a response. And I could do a whole, we could like launch into extinction burst if you want. You want me to launch into extinction burst? <laughs> sure. So extinction bursts are really interesting because we are still trying to figure out a theoretical account of why extinction bursts happen. The There was a paper that was just published, and this is the one that I sent you. It's not too long ago that 
came up with a theoretical account of Extinction Burst. It was published by a faculty member at Utah State University named Tim Shahan. And what I love about this paper in the context of, of your work is that Tim's hypothesis about why Extinction Burst happened is that in macro, so think about a loop. Think about the loop in loopy training. Your loop consists of a cue, a response, the click, the reinforcer. And so the consumption of the reinforcer. So Tim's hypothesis about why extinction bursts happen in macro extinction, that is when there's no reinforcers being delivered, is that you have some cue, right? Even if it's just the context, like generally when we're in the arena and you're standing here, I can do these things and yep. there'll be reinforcers available for it. The learner engages in the response, but there's no reinforcement side of the loop. That side of the loop in macro extinction just drops out. It's not yep. available. And so Tim's hypothesis is that when you have these macro extinction episodes, the burst is what the organism does to fill that side of the loop. And so essentially like there's this time that's not accounted for and in the rhythm of the loops, I now have a disruption and that disruption, the organism fills with bigger, badder, stronger, more frequent, more intense forms of the behavior until okay. they can get back into a cycle, which is pretty interesting, particularly because I think a lot of behavior analysts haven't paid a lot of attention to the reinforcement side of the loop. And essentially, yeah. Tim's idea is this takes time, right? The reinforcement side yes. of the loop takes time. And you have a learner who's kind of used to these shifts. And when the shifts don't happen, that's where extinction bursts come from. So the interesting no. thing about that is that it suggests, remember we talked in about two ways that you could do extinction. You could stop all the reinforcers or you could continue to, to deliver reinforcers, but they're not for that response anymore. And so this hypothesis or this theoretical account suggests that you would only get bursts in one of those two formats. You would mm -hmm. only get bursts in the first one, in the first format, and you would avoid bursts in the second format. So if mm -hmm. it was really important that you not get an increase in the frequency or intensity of this response, and you thought something about that reinforcement side of your loop was going to get disrupted, that's when those free reinforcers maybe should start coming because you might be able to avoid bursts by doing it. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of computers and you know, when you, you're typing away and you're trying to get the computer to do some, some process for you and you hit a key and nothing happens so that the thing that, you know, seeing a response from the computer is what reinforces my hitting the key, but now things are frozen up. And so I start banging away on the keys. I'm filling that time. Mm -hmm. But when the computer very cleverly puts a little wheel up, it puts mm -hmm. a little circle up, that, that I'm, at least for a little while, I will happily sit there staring at the <laughs> little wheel going around. So that's mm -hmm. exactly what you're describing. Mm. Yes. 
And interestingly, another thing that we know about macro extinction is that if you can teach, if you know that you're going to have periods of macro extinction and you can teach a clear cue that's associated with that, like reinforcers are not going to be available right now. And a, a trainer might do this, for example, if they need to sweep their barn aisles, right? Like I need to sweep my barn aisles. I am, I am not available to interact with you at this time. And so I put on my baseball cap that signals that I'm not available and like the food dispenser is turned off. That's an extinction cue. That baseball cap signals you, the food dispenser is off right now. You can't get anything from me. And when that controls behavior, and there's certain ways that you can introduce that to help it not be bad up front when you teach it. But when that controls behavior, your learners aren't frustrated by that. They go like, oh, she's got the cap on and then they wander off and eat hay. So it's- Or then they get used to the cell phone ringing and disrupting the training session. So they may have a fit the first time, but if you've done this like 25 times, they'll know that it's a cue for extinction and they won't get as frustrated. If you always end your clinic before you're going to take questions with a particular sequence of behavior that puts you in a particular spot, and then you turn away from the horse to answer questions, that becomes a cue for macro extinction. If you teach it systematically and in small increments and errorlessly, your learner probably will never experience major frustration that we might otherwise associate with what looks like macro extinction, right? So the the fun thing about all of this is that I can say like, yeah, you can have really long periods of time where there's not reinforcers available, but if you teach it appropriately, you can avoid some of the So now we have to teach effects. extinction. Another thing on my list. There <laughs> so, you go. So you have, I mean, you've described a really common scenario that people have. I need to get chores done. I need mm-hmm. to sweep my barn aisle. So I've just been clicker training. I have my pouch on. I've been actively engaging with you, but I need to sweep the barn aisle. So how would you go about that systematically? I love so that question. It, helps, it helps to have a clear signal for when reinforcers are and aren't available. That can be the absence of a signal. So if I always have a particular treat pouch on in sessions, then not having that treat pouch on can become that signal that like yes. the food machine is turned off. Personally, I am terrible at that. Also because I... I want, I didn't want that clear single signal. I wanted to be able to launch into training sessions without having a particular treat pouch on. Yep. And so I chose to go the other direction. Like I chose to have a, an extinction signal rather than our reinforcement is available signal. It sometimes makes my life a little bit of mayhem, right? Because I do teach backing while I sweep barn aisles, unless I, you know, thought to bring my baseball cap out with me, but I would introduce that signal in a really brief period of extinction. Ideally, you teach the horse to do something else or there is something else for them to do so that they, you can kind of capture a natural behavior. And then you shift back while the horse is engaged in something that's going to be available to them when you have this macro extinction in place, right? Like there is a pile of hay here. You should go eat it, yes. right? While they're engaged in that behavior, you shift back into your investment conditions. And that shift into starting a training session becomes the reinforcer for engaging in this other response while you have your extinction signal 
on is how I would approach it. Alex, how would you approach it? So I'm not quite visualizing what you just described. So, so go through it again. So you, you're working. Sure. Yeah. So I'm working with a horse. We're in a training session. Main training session is ended. I'm going to do a session ending strategy, like leave a bunch of treats in a bucket or a bowl that gives my horse something else to do. At that point, I'm going to put, I'm either going to take my pouch off if I've got a signal that signals when training is happening, or I'm going to put my like training is not happening signal on. I'm going to have a little period of time where the, the horse is engaged in something else, eating treats out of the bowl, eating hay, wandering off into the pasture to be with buddies, whatever the case may be. And then before they finish, whatever that is, whatever that activity is, if I'm still there and I'm not just departing, right? Like that also signals that extinction is happening because the human isn't here. But if I'm still there, I would start the next training session before they have a chance. Like my hay is all gone. Now, what am I going to do? I'm going to bang against my stall door, right? Like I would start my next training session and then gradually extend out the period of time that that like inner in between training sessions is with that, like I'm not available right now signal on. I would not on the first day say like, okay, now we're done. And here are your four treats in your bucket. And now I'm going to sweep the barn aisle for 45 minutes and you're whinnying and banging your door and causing mayhem. And then I'm going to start my next training session because that makes it really confusing to the horse. Starting that training session is likely to function as a reinforcer. So I'm going to program it up front pretty carefully. Yeah. Does that make more sense? Yes, it does. So that that's very much in line with the way we start out with the 20 treat strategy. So -hmm. that's basically what we're teaching that the session is going to stop, but then it's going to start up again and then it's going to stop and it's going to start up again. There was a classic one, one of the clinics is really pretty black and white, a tuxedo horse, little Irish cob. And he had a very inexperienced handler who had read just enough about clicker training to get into trouble but not but not enough to get herself out of trouble and so she had gone out to the barn and started experimenting with clicker training and this little cob was so smart he was so smart and it took him all of probably three seconds to figure out how to completely work the system to his advantage and one of the things he started to do was to bang on the stall door to get her to come back and pay attention to me. And she was very quickly told that if this did not stop the stall banging, that she was going to have to find a different barn to keep her horse in. It's like, oh dear. So she came to the clinic with this horse and we did the initial setup of, all right, we've got, we're going to do just a few rounds of targeting and then I'm going to drop some treats for him down in a bucket and I'm going to walk away. And we, the setup was, we, we didn't have very far to walk away, but I walked away. And before he was looking around saying, oh, let me start banging, we're right back in the reinforcement process. And within the course of that series of training sessions, the stall banging just went away completely. I- I think knowing about extinction bursts and how to manage them is important because it seems like 
is important for people who want to do loopy training because it seems like, well, extinction bursts are most commonly reported to occur in positive reinforcement contexts when each response is reinforced. And that's what we try to do in loopy training, right? Like when you are expanding out your loops, it is by adding kind of components to a chain, but every loop results in a reinforcer. And right. it seems like that arrangement is likely to produce, most likely to produce extinction burst when you hit macro extinction. So it is useful for loopy trainers, not for people using loopy training, not to just take the loop and and not also think about how to expand the loops systematically right. and in a way right. that's not likely to lead to macro extinction because I think bursts might be problematic if people only read this much before they start and, and don't have a plan for how to move to the, the next kind of iteration of behavior without yeah. dropping a learner into macro extinction. That makes sense. Yeah. And because it's not enough. So when a loop is clean, you get to move on. And not only do you get to move on, you should move on. What do I move on to? Well, if I decide that, yes, my horse is standing and grown-ups are talking, his head is where I want it to be, but his ears are back. So now what I'd like to do is have him stand there with his head in that beautiful position, but with his ears forward. So now I'm just going to withhold my click until his ears go forward. I'm, I'm going to be dropping my horse into an extinction process in all likelihood, because unless that behavior is already occurring, it's not likely that you're going to see the behavior that you're after. You might right. get lucky or you might yeah. get more pinned ears, pawing, biting at you, looking off into space, walking away, a lot of other things yeah. that you don't want. Yeah. So macro extinction can result in bursts. Macro extinction results in bigger amounts of behavioral variability then micro extinction does, right? Like micro extinction is a way that we might, and I'll let you define it, but I'm guessing it might be a way for us to nudge those responses, but not get like wildly different variations in behavior that we're not ready to handle. But macro extinction also leads to more of our extinction induced behavior. So we already talked about extinction induced aggression. We talked about extinction induced emotional behavior, this kind of frustration. That's a macro extinction effect. It also leads to adjunctive behavior. And I feel like I can say that because Joe did, yes. but adjunctive behavior in the laboratory, we're, we're looking at animal models of adjunctive behavior. It's behavior like excessive drinking. So we call the fancy word for that is polydipsia. So drinking a lot, when you drop an animal in the lab into macro extinction and there's a water spout available, they will drink ridiculous amounts of water. They will, if there's a running wheel available, they will run and 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 run. They will engage, they will eat, try to eat inedible objects. Um, so they'll engage in pica as an adjunctive behavior. They engage in licking. And I think this is an interesting one to think about for horses. They'll engage in adjunctive licking. And so they'll just lick. And it's because they're in macro extinction. And I think this is really interesting in the horse culture because I think so many people go like, oh, look, they're licking, that's fabulous. And I'm like, yes. oh, well, maybe, maybe it is, maybe it's not. They will engage in stereotyped grooming responses and they will stretch their, repeatedly stretch their necks out and forward. Um, 
And so you get all of these responses that are that are kind of stereotyped or repetitive oh. in nature that are a function of the macro extinction. And recently, some researchers have speculated that some human drug abuse, drug use and abuse might be adjunctive behavior resulting from macro, that it, it shares some of these features with what we see in the laboratory. In the laboratory, you can get animals to repeatedly inject cocaine as part of adjunctive behavior when food reinforcers are restricted in a macro extinction process. So there's all kinds of like unusual behavior that can yeah. pop out of macro extinction. I'm, I'm thinking of someone saying, oh, could this be, you know, like I, I, I have my new year's resolution is I'm going to exercise more. So what macro extinction process could I put myself in that would get me running on the hamster wheel? <laughs> you know, that might, that might work or you may overeat or you may yeah. drink a lot. So like, <laughs> I don't know that that's like the best plan to make sure that the refrigerator was padlocked, the water in that was turned off, and the and your hamster wheel was readily available to you. Yes, that's that's a recipe for healthy living right there. Yeah, really. <laughs> so the other thing is I think people don't like talk about adjunctive behavior quite as much as they talk about bursts and emotional responses and extinction induced aggression, but it's there. It's a macro extinction effect. And the other macro extinction effect that people, I think, don't talk about quite as much, but that's really interesting, is what's called behavioral contrast. Behavioral contrast is studied in the laboratory where there's an alternation between a reinforcement component. It starts with a reinforcement between two reinforcement components. So I am, I am training in my stall and I'm training in the arena, right? And I have responding that's being reinforced in these two components that um, both include reinforcement, but there's they're different in context. And then let's say I now say it's I'm in a boarding barn and I'm getting side-eyed when I train in the barn. So I'm only gonna train in the arena when the arena is available. Now I have extinction in the barn, macro extinction in the barn. When I'm in the barn, I'm not training anymore. There's okay. my horse is offering all kinds of behavior, but it's not going, not reinforcing it. But I'm keeping training in the arena. So there's still reinforcement in one of my two components. Does that make sense so yes. far? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. What you see is a massive increase in reinforcement rate and reinforcement variation to some extent in the arena, in the still reinforced component. So it's like the learner shifts from like reinforcement used to be available in both of these places. So now I'm going to work extra hard to get it where it is available. That might have some uses that are helpful, but in many cases, I think if you're not ready for a contrast effect that you're going to get a big increase in one location, it can be very detrimental. For example, for my human learners, when we have something happen at school and at home, and we had a behavior plan that was running at school and at home, yeah. and then one of those places stops running the behavior plan, we get a big increase in behavior in the other place. And often, at least with the school and home, the other place may not be ready for a big increase in behavior. And it can be very problematic if 
we have not selected good reinforcement procedures. And what was happening instead was, because you can get punishment-based contrast as well. And what was happening was you get a big increase in unwanted behavior in one place because behavior stopped being reinforced in another place. So contrast is worth thinking about too, because I think a lot of us probably train in multiple contexts. And if you abruptly stop in one context, you may, even if nothing changes, in the other context, you may get a change in behavior because extinct macro extinction is now part of that learner's environment in places that reinforcement used to be available. So I can think of two scenarios where you would want to be mindful of that. One is, say you're in a boarding barn and you are handling your horse and clicking and reinforcing and doing all these wonderful things, but then you're away for the weekend and you have somebody come in to handle your horse or just in the routine daily handling. You've got one handler who is a clicker trainer and the other handlers who are not. This, in, this may be the explanation for why it's so exciting when the person who's the clicker trainer appears and it can almost be too exciting when that horse sees you. Well, it's very flattering, but- If you're ready for it. If you're ready right? for it and so you know you how to manage leverage it. leverage contrast to get responses that you were ready for. Right. But if you're not ready for it, it can be alarming, yes. right? Nothing has changed. Why all of a sudden, you know? So there were two people yeah. who were working with this horse and now one of them isn't coming. There were two people who were both, training, right? Like you're, you've yeah. got an apprentice or you're working with somebody else, or you're teaching somebody else. And now they're not coming. I haven't changed anything about why I'm doing what I'm doing. Why is my horse so enthusiastic? Yeah. And it's like, well, and, from the horse's perspective, the context has changed. Right. And we, we like enthusiasm, but it can get in the way of good mm -hmm. training. Yeah. Okay. What was Enthusiasm other? is great if you're ready for it. Yes, And I, I think yes. you've said before, right? Like not, this might've been in a coaching session, right? Sometimes you have to prepare your handlers yes. for enthusiasm. Yes, very much so. Because especially if, if people are used to horses whose behavior has been suppressed and suddenly you have this horse who's coming up to the gate going, you're here. Let me show you all these. Fun I, I want to interact with you. It can be really overwhelming. And so the, the very thing that we love about clicker training, the enthusiasm, the sparkle can be what puts somebody else off. You know, that's, that's, that's not horses. Horses are supposed to, they're supposed to wait in the back of the stall and be ever so quiet until I tell them what to do. That's not the sparkle that we enjoy. You know, what's really interesting that I hadn't thought about before is that if, if you have an experienced clicker trainer who's working with a novice handler yeah. and they're going back and forth, right? Like experienced person is working with the horse and then they let the novice handler step in and work with the horse and the experienced yeah. handler works with the horse and then the novice person works with the horse. And then the experienced person says like, you seem like you got it, right? Like go forth. It's almost... It would be interesting to see if you would get contrast in that kind of situation where like now the experienced person isn't providing reinforcers when they're there anymore. Do you get a like jump in rates and enthusiasm with the novice person and, and are they prepared for that? Or do they start 
do their sides of the loop start breaking down in ways that then leads to extinction? Because now I'm fumbling for reinforcers and right. my handling starts to fall apart a little bit. And then there becomes a little bit too much extinction. And then that kind of escalates, could escalate a situation. Yeah, definitely. So contrast doesn't happen all the time. I should say that like the, the literature is mixed. And so it's interesting to like think about would this happen? And it's not a guarantee that when you shift these contexts in this way that you necessarily get contrast, just like it's not a guarantee that you would necessarily get an extinction burst. But I do think that some of these extinction effects are useful for people to know as possibilities. Right, even. right, right. Particularly for macro extinction, like they're in some ways, if you're not ready for all of this stuff, be really careful about shifting a learner into macro extinction. You need to have it if you're if you're gonna do it, you need to be ready and have a safe environment for the learner. And there's probably enough ways to avoid it to just not do it. Yes. Yes. Because why would you want to use macro extinction? in the way that we've been describing it? It's a great question. Clinically, I don't ever. My research hat says, I like studying macro extinction in context where it's safe for me to do it, like in my laboratory, because I think it happens. I think that people with the best of intentions accidentally slide learners in the macro extinction. And it's helpful for us to know when and when are bursts going to happen? Why are they going to happen? How can we stop them? When are we going to get behavioral contrast? And when aren't we? And how can we attenuate it? What order if responses are going to come back in macro extinction? Like it's helpful for me to know that it's the first response and the response that we most recently taught, because then I can structure my learning environment in a just in case that this happens. Let me teach in a way that I'm going to maximize everybody's safety and minimize the harm that might happen. Right. So from my root with my researcher hat on, I'm like, I still like studying macro extinction because I don't foresee a world in which I can entirely get rid of it. And so I think knowing about it is useful, even if I might not ever intentionally. Which, which brings it. to three important questions. Hopefully I can remember all three. So the first question would be, what would be some of the early indicators that you were slipping into a macro extinction response once you recognize that you were in a macro extinction response what would be procedures that would help you to get out of it and then what would be my third one I guess would be how do you avoid going into the macro extinction process in the first place so so let's start with your you're working with your learner what would be some of the indicators that you were heading down the slippery slope into an extinction process, a macro extinction process? Yeah, I think an interesting thing is that I think macro extinction is functional rather than structural. So I'll give you an example. I am working with a relatively young learner right now who is autistic, who engages in very severe self-injury. So open wounds, head against hard surfaces. It does not take very much extinction to be macro extinction for this learner. And we want none of it. Correct. None of it. Because um, I want no response bursting, (laughs) right? I want no responding, much less do I want response bursting. So we are being incredibly careful about avoiding extinction, anything beyond the microest of the micro extinction. Because 
extinction happens really readily for this learner too. So I know that we're starting to slide and I'm, I'm coaching teachers to work with this, with this young learner. So it's not like, it's not me with lots of experience handling this kind of behavior, right? Like I need to teach other people to see it. So what we're looking for, and I think what I would look for in any learner are early signs of frustration. Micro extinction doesn't tend to, my vision of micro extinction doesn't tend to produce frustration. And so are you starting to see a tense, a tense of like the body tension increasing? Are you starting to see, you know, in my horses, what I look for are like, do I have a peak around their eyes or do I have like nice soft eyes? Are their nostrils pulled up or are their nostrils nice and round? Little, actually like little, little things that suggest like we have gone too, like we're going too far. And if we don't start to change our path now, we may cross some threshold from micro into macro that we don't want. If you don't know a learner very well, so sometimes I work with learners that I don't know very well. I can imagine, you know, some of the people who listen to your podcast are working in rescues, they're working in training facilities, they're working with horses that they may not be familiar with to know like, what does tension look like for this horse? Like, what am I, what am I looking for? As soon as I start to see increases in the noticeable increases in the rate or intensity of a response that we've been working on, that's the early sign of a burst. And then we're there, right? Like that's not, we're crossing into the threshold of macro extinction. Like then, then we're there, right? If I am at that and I'm seeing decreases in the previously reinforced behavior, right? So I'm getting these like huge, I was reinforcing like a little leg lift, like you're just coming up. And then now I'm getting these huge, huge leg lifts with a stomp back down to the ground, right? Like we've, now we're there, we've gone too far. Changes, Um, it changes in the food the way that the horse takes the food is a big indicator. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So when you see those, I think that that's what I look for. I start to see, like, am I seeing these side effects, these generative side effects? And that's, those are my cues that my behavior needs to change. Yes. I think was your second question. Yes. Yeah, so the second question is you, you're observing that you are beginning to see the extinction burst. So how do you back yourself out of that situation? What are some strategies that would be effective? Ideally, I've done a good job with this learner and I have taught them things before we got to this point that are under good stimulus control. That is, I have a cue for them that reliably produces the response, right? And if that's the case, and I've done a good job setting myself up for that, right, where I have a cue that I'm pretty sure and we haven't gotten so far that the learner is like so upset and frustrated that they are now not attending yeah. to my cues anymore. I need to catch it earlier than that. And then I'm going to cue something that I think is going to produce a safe and incompatible behavior with whatever potential escalation that I'm seeing. You talk a lot about pairs of responses in your training. So if I was teaching something, you know, if I'm, if I've been teaching leg lifts and I'm now getting feet hooves flying at me, you know, they're coming up way too fast and they're coming down way too fast. And the food delivery is getting grabby. Like we're going to go to grownups. I'm going to cue something that is going to terminate the burst ideally. And that also is going to get back into a reinforcement loop where I am now avoiding the extinction processes because I'm, we're, we're back in reinforcement and everything's okay. And then I am either 
if I can figure out what happened as I'm in that loop, that known loop, I'm going to readjust, right? So I, I might go back to leg lifts, but I'm going to do it in a different way so that I avoid that process in the future. Or if I don't know what happened, I'm going to end on reinforcement. Like we, we get, we reestablish yep. a nice solid loop. Everything is looking good. That's great. Exit strategy, cup of tea, watch a video. Yes. Figure out what to do differently so that we don't even get that close to that burst next time. So then what you're describing is all the more the importance of having this cluster of behaviors, of go-to behaviors that are useful in terms of being incompatible with a lot of things that you don't want happening around you. Yeah. Yeah. See, do you, but like, see the extinction researcher in me and why I like your setup of your work so much? I'm like, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. The other thing for people to be thinking about, though, is not developing chains that they don't want. Yes. So I think perhaps, and it would be interesting for you to say if you've seen this very much and you're working with with new people new to your work, of pushing extinction to the point that you start to get that frustration. And that's the point that you step back into easy loops. Right. And so it's always like pushing too far and you teach the learner, like the way that you get an easier loop is you start to get frustrated and these responses start to escalate. Right. And the quicker Mm -hmm. you can escalate them, the quicker I'll step back into an easy loop and the happier your life will be. So I think that when, when the other thing to think about is if you start to get that once, it's like, how do you prevent it the next time? Right. You want to, you want to shift earlier and you want to start earlier in okay so i i did six reps and that was one too many right like i asked for this criterion and that was too far and so rather than do that again and expect something different to happen right it is like how do we prevent getting there so that we're not accidentally teaching this like if you get frustrated then things get easier and that is the only way to make things easier right? We want things to always be as easy as possible. And if we're really working on a skill that's harder is that we're interspersing easier things along the way so that it's not hard, 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 like harder, harder, harder. I'm really yeah. everything's easy, but you know, there's, we're, we're looping back and, and teaching, reinforcing skills that give learners a chance to like think and recoup and not always just pushing the envelope. Yeah, because I could see that really easily with children, how you could, we're working on math skills. I don't like these math skills. So (laughs) I start to act up a little bit and oh, I get to color. Great. Mm -hmm. So I very quickly will learn that as soon as it starts to look like math, if I act up, I'll get to color. Mm -hmm. I can see that happening really easily, yeah. So you see why that's a particularly salient thing for me when I'm working with teachers, right? It's like, don't wait. We want to catch the learners before they get frustrated and frustrated means those early signs. It yes. doesn't mean like at the point at which, you know, you're learning new curse words from the child. Frustrated means like before the learner starts to tense, like figure out how much you can ask and then gradually increase that across time. Right. And that, that begins to shift us then into things like the micro shaping strategy where you've got two behaviors. So you have behavior A is the behavior that you want to 
advance. You want to improve in some way. And behavior B is just a really simple, easy, well-known behavior that predicts high rates of reinforcement, easy peasy, might be targeting, well-known, easy behavior. So you have behavior A, maybe it's, oh, it doesn't really matter, but let's say we're, it's backing up. And so you start out by getting just a little, a little movement, tiny little micro movement in the direction of backing, you click and reinforce that, you get it again, you click and reinforce it, but your rates of reinforcement are fairly low because the behavior is not well established yet. So before the animal becomes frustrated because the rates of reinforcement are really low, you shift over the second behavior. And then you do a couple reps of the targeting and you go back to that first behavior and you're looking for any tiny little piece of that behavior that you're after. And you get a couple of reps and you begin to see a slight improvement, but you don't stay there working on, oh, let me get more backing, let me get more backing until the animal is saying, no, forget this. You're shifting back over to that second behavior and that's proves proven to be a really, really useful strategy. And then what begins to happen is the targeting becomes a conditioned reinforcer for improvements in the backing, which is really fun to see. So it's a useful strategy. So when people are using micro shaping, would you recommend that they use targeting, work on targeting outside of that context too? Right. So you've, you've, first of all, you've taught targeting previously. So it's an established behavior and it doesn't have to be targeting, but targeting is so easy. So yes. And, and that should not be the only time that you work on targeting. Yeah. It's the second piece that I was interested in because there's a, there's a, a literature on transitions between the favorable and less favorable conditions and the impact that those transitions have on behavior. And it's, it's a pretty fascinating literature. So one of the things that we know about transitions between favorable and less favorable contingencies is that a transition from a favorable situation to a less favorable situation is aversive. And if that's associated with a cue or a context, then the cue or context also becomes aversive. And it is a relative effect. So it's not an absolute effect. So in the laboratory, this is studied by transitions between reinforcement schedules most often, because it's easier for us to keep the response the same because of the way our chambers are set up, right? Like, so always the lever press, there's always a keypad, but we're transitioning between, let's say a reinforcement schedule that uh, a reinforcer is earned every 30 seconds to one where a reinforcer is earned every 60 seconds. So we have a more favorable and a less favorable one. Okay. And if the re- schedule where a reinforcer is earned every 30 seconds is associated with a red light and one with a reinforcer every 60 seconds is associated with a green light, that if you give a pigeon, I'm using pigeons, keep X lights. Yes. If, you, if you give the pigeon a response where they can turn off the green light. That is, don't tell me that I'm about to go to something unfavorable. They will do it. So they will actively try to get rid of that signal that 
the reinforcement has shifted from every being available every 30 seconds to being available every 60 seconds. This is fascinating because if you then, in another condition, say you have one component that's every 60 seconds and one component that's every 120 seconds, they will work to turn on the light that's associated with getting a reinforcer every 60 seconds. Mm-hmm. Because it's less work. Because yeah. it's because it's a relative effect right. and not an absolute effect. So it's not mm-hmm. like getting a reinforcer every 60 seconds is aversive. It is like in the context of everything else that's happening, this is aversive to me. So my vet just visited last week to do spring shots and she is, she talks about, she's, she talks about clicker trained horses when she's with me. And she like tells stories about my horses to, she had a vet student with her this time. And so she told this story about when one of her texts was standing on a mat and they thought that my horse was being really pushy. And I'm like, no, you're standing on his mat. Like you should, <laughs> you should move. And she thinks that's really cute. And she like, you know, he'll back until I tell him to stop. And she thinks that's what, you know, like magic. Yeah. So but she was saying she used to board, she has quarter horses. She competes with quarter horses. And she's like, I used to board where my quarter horse was the lowest, you know, lowest man in the herd and was getting beat up. And she's like, and when I would show up to work him, he would come running to the gate and see me. And he was really excited. Yes. And she's like, I moved boarding situations. And he's now the top horse who gets all the resources, you know, and not being picked on. And she's like, and now I have to like, he runs away from me now, you know, and I'm like, yes, because it's not you, it's you in a broader context. And so I think like, it is interesting to think about how our training nests into these bigger contexts, which I do think is related to extinction in some ways, right? Like how does our training nest into these bigger contexts of like, what is the overall reinforcing environment available to your learner? And that probably plays a pretty substantial role in how your training fits within that overall environment. Yes. yes. It's probably even easier to think of lots of example with dogs because people live with their dogs. And so there are competing reinforcers all the time when you're with a dog that lives with you. Yeah. So, and I think all of these effects are kind of relative effects, like relative. And this was the same thing when we were talking about behavioral contrast a little bit earlier, right? Like relative to what was happening before, does this feel like extinction or doesn't it, right? Like relative to the other things that are happening in my environment, is this an improvement in my conditions or is it a worsening in my conditions? And I think, you know, when people move their horses to a new place, yes, things don't necessarily just happen magically. I'm, I'm thinking of a particular situation and it was very frustrating for this handler because she hasn't changed mm-hmm. the same. She's from her point of view, the relationship should be the same, but she's moved and her horse is now part of a herd and he hadn't mm-hmm. been part of a herd before. And he wasn't as interested in coming and playing with her, which is very frustrating. Yeah, interesting. Really interesting. Huh. So the so with the micro shaping strategy, we would have to be careful about not encountering the contrast that yeah. Which doesn't And seem- I think not only working on your 
you're that you're using as the reinforcer in the context of like when we work on targeting it's because I'm going to ask you to do something that's harder for you so that's right. why I asked if you would recommend that people use right. work on the skill that they're using as the re, as the conditioned reinforcer outside of the micro shaping process because I think that might be an important component to it continuing to function as a reinforcer and not just getting tied into like oh well when you ask me to target the next thing that you ask me to do is going to be something harder Right. You know, and right. then I do this harder thing and now you ask me to target, but targeting then actually becomes a signal for it's they're hard gonna to get harder. Yeah. Yeah. This is one of those podcasts where I am reluctant to interrupt the flow of the conversation, but needs must, or this episode will become too long. Which is ironic because we're about to jump into a discussion of duration. We're going to be looking at strategies for extending duration. Before I sign off, let me remind you that the new book, Modern Horse Training, is coming out very soon. The publication date is April 26, 2023. I've seen the page proofs and I am thrilled. The book looks great. When I opened the book for the first time, I just loved it. The pages are easy to read. The print is inviting. You can write the best book in the world, but if you cram the page full of densely packed print, no one is going to want to read it. Environmental arrangement matters for books just as much as for training horses. It's going to be just a really great resource for you. The book itself is over 300 pages long. The table of contents just by itself is 10 pages. So when I say the book is packed, I mean the book is packed. I'm still working on my elevator pitch to describe what's in it and why you should read it. So far, we need a really tall building for the elevator, and I still haven't figured out how to pack it all in to uh, an elevator pitch. So rather than trying to tell you in just a few sentences what the book is about, I've been writing a series of blog posts. I like to write, so that's what I've been doing. You can read them at theclickercenterblog.com. I'm sharing not the book itself, but stories behind the development of my training and stories behind the writing of the book. So it's a fun way to share with you while we're waiting for the book to come out. The book will be available as a hardcover, a paperback, and also as an ebook. Lots of choices. You'll be able to order it through my website, through Amazon, and many other booksellers. I'll have more information on how you can order the book as we get closer to the publication date. For now, enjoy the, the podcast, enjoy the blog posts at theclickercenterblog.com, and If you haven't already, be certain to subscribe to the blog so you get all the posts. And next week, we'll have part three of our conversation with Dr. Claire St. Peter. In the meantime, train well and have fun with your horses. (music) 